Today we're going to wrap up the 10th chapter of the book of Exodus. And then in doing so, we will take a break from Exodus for a few weeks. Not because I want to stretch out the book over multiple years, but it's also good to take a break. And so uh, next week, uh, if, you, if you look in your bulletin at the bottom of the page, it has a passage. That's the passage we're going to look at, Lord willing, over the next three weeks. Uh, t- talking about the note page on your bulletin, uh, we've got a passage in Romans that we're going to look at. Looking forward to that. Uh, Exodus began with a grim situation. God's chosen people, the Israelites, were in a bad place. Egypt, the nation that had meant life and rescue for Jacob and his family as they escaped the famine, had now become their slave masters. Remember that? Joseph was number two in Egypt, and there was a famine in his homeland, and his father was without food, his brothers were without food, and they had to go to Egypt. Why? Because God had sent Joseph ahead. That they would store up the bounty for seven years to endure the seven years of famine. So the Egypt, the nation that had been a rescue to Jacob and his family had now become their slave masters. The Pharaoh at the time of the, uh, the time frame of the early chapters of the book of Exodus, the Pharaoh in power at that time recognized that the Israelites were mighty and that they could probably overthrow Egypt if they had a mind to do so. So what did he do? Well, I will keep them from becoming powerful. I'll make the, the midwives kill all the baby boys. That didn't work out for him, did it? Because the midwives feared God and the children of Israel continued to grow in numbers and in strength. And then Moses was born. That's where we found ourselves in chapter 2. In fact, chapter 2 summarizes Moses' 40 years in Egypt as he uh, was, as an infant, able to live with his, his biological parents, but then was adopted by uh, the, the princess and became one of Pharaoh's household and lived the vast majority of those 40 years in the palace and then uh, 40 years in the wilderness being a shepherd for his father-in-law's sheep. From the palace to the, ugh, the smelliest of jobs that one could probably come up with, maybe not the worst, but... Definitely a distinct difference. This, this chapter 2 was 80 years of Moses' life. Finally, in chapter 3, Moses encountered God in the form of a burning bush. That bush that would, would burn but not be consumed. And that small voice came from it. Moses, take off your shoes because the ground on which you are standing is holy. Because you're in the presence of God. So God calls Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And how does Moses respond? Nope. I can't speak. I have a, I have a, a problem speaking. They're going to kill me if I show up in Egypt. Which, I mean, that was a legit reason. He was a wanted man. And God keeps showing him his power so that Moses will say yes. And in the end, Moses or just before the end, Moses says, please just send someone else. And God in his mercy and his grace, what's he do? He sends Aaron with Moses. So Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. They show the signs that God has given them. 
to prove that Jehovah is the one true God? And how does Pharaoh respond? Do you remember that? Instead of responding favorably to God's message, let my people go, he instead makes the people continue to make bricks, but no longer supply them with the straw. Here, keep up all the quotas, all the production that you've been doing, but you have to go get your own supplies. He's punishing the slaves because of Moses. It was only after this first meeting with Pharaoh that does not go so well for the Hebrew slaves that God gives his purpose to Moses. I'm going to read just a few verses from Exodus chapter 6. In the middle of this was our theme verse that we've been looking at uh, over over these past weeks. But I want to read the expanded passage this morning. Exodus chapter 6 beginning in verse 6. God tells Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I like this whole paragraph. First of all, it gives us seven I wills that God tells his people. I will, I will, I will. I'm going to do this. He doesn't say, if you do this, I will do that. Or if Pharaoh, you know, has a good day and and maybe he'll release his. No, he says, I'm going to do it. My dear friend, when God says he's going to do it, you can take it to the bank. He's going to do it. And since that time, since that giving of that that purpose statement, in this interim moment, because Moses and Aaron have finally appeared before Pharaoh for the first time, and it didn't go well. Now, not only has Pharaoh uh, made life more miserable for the slaves and clearly said, I'm not going to let the people go, Now Moses and Aaron are getting some backlash from the people. Why did you do this? It was bad enough that we were slaves. Now we're enslaved and being beaten by our masters. But since then, God has proven himself over and over to the Israelite people and to Moses. God has proven himself over and over to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians that Jehovah is the one true God. So, so far we've looked at the eight plagues. Each encounter with Pharaoh Each encounter that Pharaoh has had with God through Moses is an opportunity to obey God. A legit opportunity for him to say, yes, I recognize that you, Jehovah, are the the powerful God, so I will do what you say, I will let the people go. He has this this opportunity to do that. And a handful of times, he kind of looks like he's going to, and then after the plague is relieved, of course, he, he doesn't. Each time, Pharaoh refuses. Eight plagues. Today is number nine. We're taking a break before number ten because number ten is going to take a while and we need that time off. So that's okay. So would you stand with me as we read our passage this morning? We're in Exodus chapter 10, beginning in verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve Jehovah. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to Jehovah our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take them to serve Jehovah our God. And we do not know with what we must serve Jehovah until we arrive there. But Jehovah hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are the one true God. All your words are true. All of your actions are good. All of your purposes are right. In everything that you do, you are just. Because you are who you are, we would be utter fools to not trust you. We would be we'd be unworthy of all that you do for us. Because in your righteousness and in your perfection, you stand apart from us. For we are sinners. So the fact that you would make any way for us to be made right in your eyes is absolutely amazing. And the fact that you did make a way, not through sacrifices of animals like was pictured in the Old Testament, was was performed in the Old Testament to picture the New Testament, but you you, saved us by the execution of, of the one true Lamb of God, your Son, Jesus Christ. Because of who you are and how you work in our lives, help us to respond back with adoration and faithfulness and thanksgiving. So Lord, work in our hearts today. Mold us to be like our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Throughout the previous plagues, we've looked at God's power, which is always the right place to look. We've adored him for his grace and his goodness. We've committed to spreading God's fame and glory as Moses was told. I'm doing this so that all the world may know that I am God. I'm doing this so that all of Israel may know that I'm God. I'm doing this so that Egypt and Pharaoh may know that I am God. I'm doing this so that you would tell your children and your grandchildren. We've committed to spreading God's fame and glory. We've submitted to his sovereignty 
and his plan. All because of what the word of God says is true of our God and the acts that he has done. Today we're still going to focus on God. We're going to recognize the example that Moses is and has been to us in remaining faithful to God, to Jehovah, over time and through trials. It's one thing for us to be committed to something. It's, one, it's a completely different thing for us to stay committed to something. How many of you have a project in your garage that you were gung-ho to get started, and here it sits weeks, months, years, let's be honest, later, right? God is always faithful to us. Therefore, we should remain faithful to him. And Moses is a very good example of that. Was he perfect? No. We saw uh, some deliberate sins on his part in the past. I'm not going to rehearse all of those. We're going to see more as he leads Israel in the upcoming chapters as we uh, come back to Exodus, Lord willing, in January. Uh, But Moses, in general, overall, the character of Moses, he stays faithful to God over time, and through trials. When it's, when it's harder to stay faithful, when others would look at you and, and be like the friends of Job, or actually more the wife of Job, that says, curse God and die. Because hard times have come. No, Moses remained faithful. Moses had no idea how long these plagues would go on. Keep that in mind. If you're coming into this study, you probably already knew that there were 10 plagues. That's the, you don't have to be a, a, an intense biblical scholar to know that. So we know, because we're looking at number 9, that number 10's coming, and that's the last one. Moses doesn't know that. Moses didn't know if this was going to be a year's worth of events, or 40. He had no idea. Here's what God did tell him. In chapter 4, verse 22 and 23 of Exodus, God tells Moses that it was by his mighty hand, the killing of the firstborn of Pharaoh, that would, it would be what it takes. Here's, here's what the passage says. Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So Pharaoh has that warning from the very beginning that his eldest son, the one that would inherit the kingdom, that special child, that child was going to die if Pharaoh did not let God's people go. Moses did not know how long this was going to take. He didn't know how many plagues were going to happen before this final one. But it didn't matter what Moses did not know. What did matter is who Moses did know. And he knew God well enough to trust him, no matter how long it took. Our big idea this morning is God is worthy of our unwavering faithfulness. That's a really heavy statement, actually, if you think about it. He's worthy of our faithfulness that doesn't fade over time. Faithfulness that doesn't trip. Faithfulness that remains faithful. He's worthy of that. We're weak, but he's worthy of it. So that is our our goal this morning. That's where we're going. 
As we look at our passage verse by verse, we'll see that uh, first um, God paralyzes the Egyptians with darkness. Verse 21, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Now in previous uh, plagues, you remember the the third plague and then the sixth plague came without warning. Both the third and the sixth came without warning, whereas one and two, four and five came with warnings. The same is in this trio. So this this third of this uh, final trio of plagues comes without warning. Now, we don't know if Moses did this in the sight of Pharaoh. He may have. The, the third plagues before, he, he did this in the sight of Pharaoh or Pharaoh's uh, magicians, the leaders of his nation. And that way, the people would have a direct connection between Moses' staff and the, the plague that was coming through. We're not told that that's what happened here, but it's probably what happened. He was in, in Pharaoh's sight and stretched his hand with his staff toward heaven, and darkness fell upon the land. A darkness, uh, verse 22, so Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They didn't see anyone. No one got up. But the people of Israel had light. The sky immediately and completely turns black. No light breaks through. I've had some cloudy days, but I haven't experienced this. There are plenty of theologians who really try hard to ascribe this plague to natural events. There was, there was a big wind and a sandstorm came in. Well, first of all, I'll tell you my opinion. That's nonsense. It's hogwash. Because if it were a sandstorm, then they would say they didn't leave their houses because of the sandstorm. But it says they didn't rise up at all because it was dark. This is also nonsense because of what God is doing. He's attacking their God. Their number one God was the God of, of the sun, and God's attacking him directly. But we'll get more into that in just a moment. Uh, there's a phrase here that is fascinating. He says it, it was a darkness to be felt. It's kind of an eerie statement, isn't it? Most English translations make sort of an emotional connection to this darkness. And that's what I feel as I read that. Did you, did you sense that? Some commentators think that the understanding should be that the darkness was so dark that people had to feel to get around. They had to, to grope to get around. That is a translation that fits grammatically. I don't think that fits well with the sense of what God is trying to do here. I do believe this was intended to be an emotional statement, not just a physical statement. That yes, physically there is darkness, but they felt the weight of that darkness as well. Even in pre-electric societies such as ancient Egypt, it would be a rare set of circumstances for it to be so dark that you couldn't do anything. I mean, they had candles, right? They had little oil lamps. They had the capacity. The, the flame isn't that novel to them. They, they could make fire, but it was so dark that that wasn't enough. They just stayed put. This darkness was stifling. 
heavy, stopping everything. At first blush, it may, might look like this plague was one of the weaker plagues. I mean, let's go through the plagues. The first one was the blood, the, the Nile turning to blood, uh, that, that source of life killing all the fish and stinking and being undrinkable. That lasted a week, and then it was restored. And even in that time, they were able to use well water. They were able to drink. It was a nuisance. It was annoying. It was disturbing. Next was frogs. All the frogs came and invaded the land. They were everywhere. They were in the houses, in their food supply. The gnats and the flies, these biting bugs came. And then there was a real step up in the severity of the plagues, wasn't there? Because the next one was the, the livestock, the direct death of animals, whether it was some disease that quickly came in all at once or however the Lord did it, he did it. A pestilence that killed all the livestock out in the field except for those of the children of Israel, right? Not one of theirs died. That hurt. That hurt. That, that the Egyptians felt that. The next one was the boils, the, the painful sores on all the Egyptian people. That hurt too. And then... The next two were, were just a thorough devastation. The direct death of people and animals coming from the hail. Anyone that was out in the fields was killed. It's a pretty severe plague. Then the locusts come and eat everything green that's left. So their food supply is, is greatly hindered and diminished. The only thing that they have to rely on is things that have been stored and perhaps that which will still grow but everything that had been growing, everything that was in leaf was gone. That's pretty profound. But now we get to this plague that's just darkness. Oh, there's probably some of you that could use a three-day vacation where all you can do is sleep. It doesn't seem as severe. I'm telling you, though, it is. This darkness was the greatest direct assault of Jehovah God against the gods of Egypt. Without sun, there is no life. Now, we know that, right? We know that if the sun were to stop, everything would stop growing, and it wouldn't take long, and there would be no life left. Ancient Egyptians knew that, too. In fact, they probably understood it, understood it more intuitively than, than you or I do. Uh, they understood that if you planted some grain under a tree, it wouldn't produce nearly as much grain as planted in full sun. And they didn't have to be told in a textbook. Now, some of you are farmers, some of you are gardeners, you know this. But the rest of us had to be taught because <laughs> it's not intuitive. They knew, they knew the importance of the sun. Their God, the sun God, was the most revered of their gods, which makes sense. If you worship the ground, we know that there are cycles of growing. In some years, the ground just doesn't produce as well as others, right? They did worship the ground. But sometimes the ground wasn't being a very consistent God. Or if you worship the Nile, which they did. They worshiped the Nile. Uh, some years, the Nile was more productive than others. Making the Nile an inconsistent God. But the sun... Man, that sun is predictable. It's so predictable that we can figure out what time we will uh, recognize sunrise any given day of any given year. 
And it's different based on exactly what location on the planet you are. And we can figure that out. Why? Because the sun is 100% predictable. The Egyptians knew that. The sun was always there. Sure, there were days that were cloudy and you didn't see it as much, but they knew the sun was still there. Now all of a sudden, that one faithful little G God that they worshipped, now all of a sudden that God was gone. They couldn't see it at all. For three whole days. I mean, I've been in some dark nights where you step outside and, and it's, it's dark cloud, especially if it's raining. It just seems extra dark when it's raining. I've experienced some real darkness, but never in the middle of the day. And neither did they. This was unsettling. This was a direct attack on the God that was at the very top of their hierarchy of, of 80 or so naturalistic gods. Jehovah has nullified their greatest God. Remember, Moses was raised in the Egyptian culture. He knew just how important the sun god was to them. So Jehovah's assault on the Egyptian gods was clear to everyone. Moses knew it. We might not recognize it on the surface as we read the text, but Moses knew it. Pharaoh knew it. And so did all the people. That is the power of our God. The things that we just take for granted. The sun is just always there. We take that for granted. If God decided to get rid of the sun, he could totally do it. And we'd be helpless to stop it. God is worthy of our unwavering faithfulness in light of his ongoing grace. Just sunshine is grace. We see Pharaoh once again You'd think he'd learn his lesson. Once again, he calls in Moses. Verse 24. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and herds remain behind. And how Moses responds to this demonstrates his demonstration, demonstrate his determination to serve God. Verse 25. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. So once again, Pharaoh puts Moses on the spot by attempting to negotiate the terms of their departure. Last time, he tried to say, well, just take the men and go. Leave, leave the women and children. Leave your life. Just men, go worship. I know that's what you're, you're asking for. It wasn't, but that was his assumption based on what he understood of worship. No longer is he trying to just let the men go. He says, go and take your children, but at least leave your livestock behind. So from the start, Pharaoh was completely certain of just how big of a hit it would be to Egypt if Israel were gone. He understood the value of their free labor, their slave labor. He understood what they brought to the table. He understood the economic disaster that would follow, the political uproar that would follow if he let Israel go. 
So for all of his efforts to keep the slaves in place, Pharaoh has shown that the power of his administration, the magicians, were completely useless against Jehovah. Remember, uh, in the early plagues, uh, Moses Moses and Aaron would do a sign, and then the magicians would do the same thing. Bringing about more frogs for whatever purpose that might have served. Pharaoh and his people have lived through plagues of bugs and pains of boils just to keep the Israelites. They've lost the wealth of their livestock through the disease and then by the hail that took out any others that were out in the field. Having lost their animals, having lost many people, having lost their fields and their forests and their vineyards, having lost every green thing, For all Pharaoh's intent and purposes of keeping Israel in Egypt, he has utterly failed. It has cost him so much. There is so little left. But Pharaoh continues to try to keep something. Keep something back that might cause the Israelites, after they've gone to worship God, to come back. He needs them to come back. So Pharaoh says in verse 24, Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and herds remain behind you. Moses' response after that is really a master class in fidelity or faithfulness or devotion to God's commands. How does one remain faithful to God's commands? Because this applies to us directly, doesn't it? How do we remain faithful to God's commands? First of all, we need to know them, right? Moses knew God's commands. It's evident by the way he responds. No, we have to make a sacrifice. And we haven't been told yet how that sacrifice is going to take place. So we're taking all of our animals. Moses knew God's command. Now Moses had direct communication from God in order to know his commands. Do we have direct communication from God? I will accept yes or no. If you mean no, we don't have direct communication of God speaking to us, then you're correct. But if you say yes, we have direct communication of God because it's recorded as the Bible, then that is also the correct answer, isn't it? Yes, we have direct communication from God. It's called the Bible, the Word of God. And we can read it and understand it. So the first thing to remain faithful to God's command is to know God's commands. The second one is to not waver from what God actually says. That's why we employ uh, an interpretation of Scripture that that is commonly referred to as... um, Authorial intent. There it is. I'm like, man, I got to say it now. Authorial intent. We try to understand the Word of God the way the author wanted it to be understood. Now, if you've ever said something or written something and had someone take it and twist it to mean something that you didn't mean, then you already know the importance of authorial intent. We need to know what God says and not waver from what He intended us to know and do. The temptation that Eve, that first woman, the temptation that Eve faced in Genesis chapter 3 is the exact same tactic that Satan uses today. Did God really say? And then insert doubt. 
And we don't have to have a serpent verbalize that to us. We were actually really good. Did God really say? No, we need to know what God's word says, which means we need to stay in it because we will forget. We will forget details. We will warp details in our minds. We have to stay in God's word and then determine to remain faithful to what he intends us to do. Pharaoh seemed so close to letting the people go. He seemed to be so close. And to any leader that would be less faithful than Moses, it might have been tempting to just take the offer. You know what? Pharaoh said, we can go, we can take our women and children, we can take all the people, we just have to leave behind the animals, let's just do it. We can get more animals. They grow and reproduce, we just have to find a few, it'll be fine. For any lesser of a leader than Moses, they might have been willing to take the deal. But Moses stands strong even to this seemingly small detail. No, we have to take all of our animals. Moses is not going to give an inch. Moses had not forgotten God's command. He had not forgotten God's demands. And he wasn't willing to compromise. Moses is devoted to God's purpose in his life. Are we devoted to God's purpose in our life? God de- God's demands in our lives are actually pretty basic if you boil them down to their component parts. Worship God. Treat others well. I mean, Jesus himself said we could boil the whole law down to that. In Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 36, we read these words. Uh, these, these, t- um, these religious leaders were coming to Jesus to try and trip him up, to, to get him to deny some of the law. So they say, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. They would have accepted that answer. Quoting from the Old Testament. But he continues, he said, And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. It's pretty simple, really. It's true that there are more details that God wants of us, how to specifically play those out. But if we keep in mind, I need to worship God and treat others well, and I'm going to use the Bible to guide me in those two ways. We're at least going to be on the right track, aren't we? Moses stood firm. He had the opportunity to compromise. How often are we willing to compromise? Oh, it's just a little detail. I'll let you come up with the examples yourselves. That way you don't feel like I'm stomping on your toes. But we all have ways that, like, yeah, I know God doesn't want me to, but. Moses stood firm. God, in that very moment, was proving his power over the gods of Egypt. I'm sure that helped. That helped him with his, his courageousness and his steadfastness. And like the previous few plagues, the Israelites are not affected by the darkness. So, so. Keep in mind the big picture that's going on here. The the little g God that Egypt serves, the sun, the little g God of Egypt is hidden from them, 
but is on full display for the Israelites. Now, they don't worship the sun. They worship the one who made the sun. They don't worship the sun. So the little god of Egypt, the sun, is on full display for Israel. And Israel's god, Jehovah, has blocked Egypt's god from them. And shines the light on his own people. The irony is not hard to see here. We've seen them paralyzed in the darkness. We've seen Moses is determined to serve God well. And the last verses that we'll look at, we see the petrification is finalized. Petrification is to turn into stone. Uh, Maybe some of you have been out to the petrified forest. It's fascinating. Trees that uh, over time, because of the minerals that were around them, however God brought that to pass, they are now stone. This is a good description of Pharaoh's heart. And the hardening of his heart, the, the becoming more stubborn of his own will and of the will of God has, is, is now finalized. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is complete. He will not let the people go, and he even goes a step further. Verse 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, go away from me. Take care to never see my face again. For on that day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Here's something that we as believers, it's okay if we struggle to understand it, but, but these are true statements. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are both true. God's sovereignty over Pharaoh, because it says right there, the Lord, verse 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. God's sovereignty over Pharaoh is true. But so is Pharaoh's responsibility for his actions. It's true for us as well. God's sovereignty is true, but we also have our responsibility to obey God, to trust him. So, don't let this concept of God hardening Pharaoh's heart disturb you. Don't be disturbed that God would harden anyone's heart. Rather, be amazed that he would ever soften one. Because a hard heart, a rebellion against God, is our natural state. Paul put it this way. But God demonstrated his, demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because we were good people already. No, we were enemies of God. We had hearts of stone. Don't be amazed that God would ever harden heart. Be amazed that he would ever soften one. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're one of those who is born with a, a, a hardened heart, a sinful heart, a stone heart. Uh, the way Ephesians 2 puts it, we were born dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. The ways that we, uh, were, that we inherited from our ancestor Adam, that sinful nature that we inherited from him, we live out. Because we were born for it. We were born in our trespasses and sin. But God showed his grace and mercy by sending Jesus who lived a perfect life and died for the punishment of our sin. Don't ever be amazed that God would harden the heart. Be amazed that he would soften it. That he would 
help you believe. So you might trust Jesus as your Savior. Our passage ends with Pharaoh warning Moses to not see him again. It's probably better understood, don't seek me again. In other words, don't, don't come to the palace and ask for a hearing because that's what had been happening. That's how, it's, that's how this whole thing started. Pharaoh had kind of an open door policy. Just people in the kingdom could come and, and get a, a, a visit with the Pharaoh. And that's how Moses and Aaron end up in, the, in his presence the first time. And Pharaoh says, no, no more. You try to come talk to me again, you're dead. Though God did not tell Moses that the pattern of meeting Pharaoh before the plagues was, was now over, God had given Moses the understanding intuitively, and we see that in Moses' response. As you say, I won't seek you again. There would be no more formal interactions with Pharaoh because the end is near. We don't know when our end is near, whether we're talking about our mortal life that could give out at any moment, or if we're talking about the end with Jesus coming back and taking us to be with him. This afternoon would be great, wouldn't it? We don't know. Moses didn't know. God directed him as he went. But Moses had been given a purpose from God to lead God's people out to the wilderness to worship him. And Moses has embraced his purpose and is unwilling to compromise even in the face of immediate danger. Pharaoh was a powerful man. He could have made Moses' life very miserable. God is worthy of our unwavering faithfulness just as Moses gave it as well. So, will you seek to understand your God-given purpose as revealed in Scripture? Will you determine to stick with your God? Will you determine to stick with the purpose that He gives you from the Scripture? So this isn't an assignment to go home and dream of, what should my purpose be? What does God's Word say our purpose is? Our purpose is to bring glory to Him. Our purpose is to Worship him. Our purpose is to make disciples who grow and serve, right? Will you stick with your God-given purpose? Today, some of you just need a way to go. Keep it up. You need to be encouraged because you're on the right track. And there's others perhaps today who have never started on this Christian walk. You haven't put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ. Either, either you're unsaved and you haven't started that walk at all today, believe. Believe and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know what more of that means, or I can show you from Scripture, I'd be happy to do that. Or, or others, maybe you, maybe you are a believer, but you just haven't grown. And you need to put that energy into being a follower of Jesus Christ. We'll help you do that too. It's what we do. It's what the church is all about. So wherever you are, take the example of Moses and follow the Lord. No matter the circumstances, no matter the resistance, no matter what your heart is telling you, don't listen to your heart. Hearts lie. Be faithful to your God, to your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we know that if we 
determined to live for you, which is the right thing for us to do. We know that if we determine to live for you, that we will face resistance. We will face resistance from our own wicked heart. We will face resistance from people who mean well in our communities, in our schools, at our work. We may even face resistance from those close to us, family members. We may face resistance because we're just tired. And we want to be in your presence. Lord, whatever our circumstance, help us to remain faithful to you. Your word has promised an end, or at least a new future. Your word has promised us that when we put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, when we turn from our sins and turn to you for salvation, that you give it, that you will restore all good things. Your promise is that this world will be remade and that we'll have an eternity free from sin, free from pain, free from corruption around us, Lord, your promises are true. We know that's going to happen. So help us to remain faithful in the here and now. You alone are worthy of our devotion. You are worthy of our faithful love, our faithful actions. So Lord, help us to be faithful. Thank you for your word that encourages and, and directs us. We thank you for your spirit that helps us to understand Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in us as a result of the power of your word in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.